For the week of September 28th, 2017, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. On this week's show, we talk with Democratic candidate for state Senate in the 31st Legislative District, Michelle Rylands. And then we chat with a leading member of the Columbia Gorge Women's Action Network, a group based in Washington's 3rd Congressional District that is part of the Indivisible Network. All that, and we will have our dose of good news, plus our call to action. Michelle Rylands is a Democratic candidate for state Senate for Washington's 31st Legislative District, and she joins us now. Michelle Rylands, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. So you posted on Facebook Live last night that you were out canvassing in the rain, so you have been hard at work and for a very long time. Uh, How are things going for you? Oh, man, they're going excellent. Yes, we have a very um, dedicated and a strategic way in which we're going to knock on these doors. So uh, we have two field organizers. I have Mike Fertakis as my um, campaign manager. And so it is seven days a week. I alone Mm -hmm. are to hit uh, 100 doors each uh, Saturday and Sunday. And then we do about 40 to 60 each weekday night. In the rain, wow. not in the rain, it doesn't matter. Rain or shine. That's, rain that, or shine. Yeah, that's, that's seven days a week. That's very <laughs> impressive. So the, the Senate seat that you are, state Senate seat that you're running for, was vacated by Pam Roach, who was elected to the Pierce County Council, and Republican Phil Fortunato was appointed to fill the seat uh, until the election this November, the special election. Uh, first, I'm curious, what was it that made you decide to jump into this race? Well, I have to be honest. I actually got a phone call. So in, let's see, April on a Sunday night at like nine, which is odd that I would even answer my phone because that would not be a time in which I would ever answer my phone. Mm. I got a call from Brian Gunn, who uh, is the chair for the 31st uh, Dems uh, in my district. And uh, he out of the blue was like, hey, you know, your name's been floating around. Would you like to run? Uh, for the state Senate. And my first thought was, I don't know you. Uh, This is creepy that you have my phone number. (laughs) Um, So, uh, but after talking to him, you know, he's a great guy and he is so dedicated to the 31st. And I will not say that it was something that I have not thought about in the future. Would I say that it was on my exact radar at that point in time? No. But um, just after talking with uh, my family and and then sitting down with Bailey Stober, uh, who is, runs the King County Dems, um, They gave me just a lot of certainty that I would have help, that I would not be out there by myself trying to run for this seat. And just kind of everything in play as far as my kids are older now, and it's an off-year election, so it's a special election. So that makes it um, uh, not easier, but uh, there's a better chance, I should say. And so, yeah, so it was, everything just kind of came together, and I just felt like I had a lot of good support behind me, and so I said yes. Well, so you said that your name had been floating around out there. Uh, What specifically was it that called you to their attention? I'm sure they told you. Yeah, so I'm the the work that I have done uh, for the school district and for the PTA all the way up to the state level. So um, almost a decade of um, starting off as just a, a mom who went into her kid's class who who thought, oh, well, this is a nice looking building. Everything must be going great in, in this in school. And just kind of realizing once you get into the infrastructure of the school district uh, where things were lacking. And so, you know, we make a joke in the PTA. If you make eye contact at a PTA meeting, you end up the president. And- <laughs> 
And so I um, kind of just started off as, uh, well, actually the secretary, then the president, then the president again, then the president of another PTA. And so you made a lot of eye contact. Is what I made saying. a lot of eye Yeah, I should have just ran away. But it, uh, you just be, it's actually quite addicting um, because you can really see the change. That's the great thing about the PTA. You don't have to wait a long time. It's a lot of instant gratification as far as going out, helping raise money or helping make change. And you really get to see that that change happen immediately. So uh, was the Auburn Council of PTA. So that's overseeing all the PTAs. I was the president for that and sat on the board that oversees all the PTAs in South King County. It's called Region 9. That's um, 136 PTAs and then actually helping at times teach for the state. So um, love the PTA. In 2014, uh, the, they had a really good platform. Um, the PTA did. It was reducing class size, changing the curriculum uh, for how many credits you needed to graduate. And then if a shop or some type of a trade class had a good math curriculum that could count as a math credit for kids so stood next to the governor uh he signed some bills i took some of his pens and uh, <laughs> that um i really liked seeing that kind of a change on a much broader scale and then um ended up uh helping uh get a tech levy passed so the my kid took three years to see that one but my kids this year and all the kids all got handed a chromebook this year because we worked on getting a technology um uh, replacement levy passed and then the big whopper one was an auburn school district got a half a billion with a b dollar bond pass to rebuild six schools and build two brand new schools. That's enormous. Well, you, so it, it sounds like you've gotten a ton done with the PTA. And I, I definitely want to get into your platform uh, on education. Um, and I, I actually should say, uh, it, it sounds like, you know, you're used to getting things done very quickly in the PTA. And of course, as we know, in Olympia, uh, things happen much more slowly. So it might be a little bit of a uh, uh, an adjustment for you. But I, I want to talk a little bit about your personal background first. Um, you're an Army veteran. You're an MP in the Army. Uh, I'm wondering, how do you see your military service informing your politics? Um, well, I think that, you know, one, you know, the, and I'm also a, a, what we call a brat. Um, so both my folks are retired Air Force veterans as well. So my whole life has been um, uh, around that, whether, you know, being a dependent of the military or actually being in the military. And what um, comes with that is one, especially on kind of, I hate to say, I'll use dependent instead of brat. We all call ourselves brats, but. My wife is one too. So yeah, so I, I know the term. Yeah. So. <laughs> Um, is one is you have to be extremely flexible. Um, my dad was a loadmaster in Vietnam, and so we moved a lot. Some people can stay at a base their whole life. That is kind of whatever their, their parents did, but uh, that wasn't the case in, in for me. And so um, that ability, you you know, you just have to know that you're going to pack everything up and you're going to move to a new place. I was born um, overseas in Spain, lived in Taiwan, lived in Italy. And um, so you have to be flexible in the culture that you're moving into. You have to have the ability to adapt. Um, you also have the ability to quickly get in and make friends. I think that's the greatest um, part about being a dependent is you don't have a lot of time to wait to see if you like somebody right. or we're going to build this friendship over years or whatever. You really go in and learn to make very quick connections um, based on very little bits of information about people. And um, so I think that that's one of the, my, the, my strong suit. Plus, you're talking about uh, 
people from all different cultures. I mean, you're talking about the kids you go to school with, um, you know, sometimes their, their dad or their mother uh, is from a different country. You know, the, the father went over and, and met somebody. And then, so you have to have the ability um, to uh, deal with a lot of different ideas and a lot of different backgrounds and cultures. And right. so I think it makes you open and flexible and you just have to realize that, um, you know, life is not stagnant and that it moves quickly and then you have to move quickly with it or you will be disappointed. Right. So prepared you to be flexible and to deal with yeah. a number of diverse situations, be personable and all that. So I do want to talk about some of your platforms that you're running on. And, and we will start with education because you brought that up earlier. This is very central to your campaign. Um, as you've said, you're a mom, you're a longtime PTA president. First, talk a little bit about how the state currently funds public education and how you would like to see that change. Well, I feel a lot of it is funded on the backs of, of property taxes. So, I mean, the people, that's who it's hitting hard the most. Um, for me, I would like to see other ways in which to fund it. I am um, very much into closing corporate tax loopholes. I, I feel that we have many corporations in the state that are not paying their fair share. And this idea that they're just going to pack up and leave if we want them to pay their fair share, um, to me, seems a little like bullying and blackmail to me. So I'm not a big fan of that. Um, I also am a big um, proponent of the capital gains tax. I think the other side does a really good job of scaring normal, everyday um, middle-class workers into thinking that um, it's going to affect them. Um, my husband and I, we feel we do pretty well, and it would be hard uh, we'd be hard pressed to be affected by the capital gains tax. The limit is high. And um, so I think they, they scare people a lot, especially down in the 31st where I'm at. It's, um, it's, it's probably not the strongest economic uh, district in the state, but they do a really good job of telling people that, um, that you know, they're going to be coming for you with the capital gains tax when I doubt that it would hardly touch anybody in my district at all. Right. So I'm a little tight. Yeah. So it's hard for me. Um, all the times I've gone down and testified on McCleary and the PTA has testified on McCleary and we have fought. Um, it was never, I think, in anybody's uh, game plan that it was going to then just be put on the bat by raising more property taxes for people to fund that. You mentioned large corporations here in the state. Uh, you have made small business promotion uh, a big part of your platform. Uh, and this, of course, is something that's very near and dear to the hearts of many communities across the state and certainly to people in the 31st. Uh, you yourself have been a small business owner. You say you can help small businesses by, quote, listening to small business owners and their workers and prioritizing our local community over national corporate interests. So how does that work uh, at a legislative level in Olympia? Well, I think we definitely need to address the B&O tax. Once again, um, the, the the small business owner, like the property tax owner, is the one who is having to fund. I mean, that's a, that's con those taxes are continually being raised, and the small business owner is continually having to make up the slack for things that are, um, once again, that I feel um, when, you're, when corporations are not paying their fair share, somebody has to make up that money. That's always people, it's just, you know, it's just like, they gave a, a 40, almost a 40% tax cut this time around. That money just doesn't magically appear from somewhere and it has to come. And that comes on the backs of property tax, you know, more property taxes, higher B&O taxes. 
And I think um, just to clarify, uh, when, I, when you say B&O, you're talking about small business taxes. And so in any event, you're you're talking about lowering the tax burden. You're proposing lowering the tax burden on small yes. businesses in the district. Well, and we have to look, we especially because we are moving into it's going to we're going to hit this tipping point where and I very much was for fifteen dollars an hour. I mean, I had already started that, um, you know, because we're doing it's it, the the raising uh, the, the minimum wage uh, to fifteen dollars an hour is coming in increments, right? And so, as a business owner, you need to plan for the fact that in a couple of years, I have, my employees are going to be paid this much, and in a couple more years, they're going to be paid this much, and then B and O taxes are continually to rise. So it's going. You're getting to a point where um, you're just going to run a small business owner out of business. So there needs to be some relief, and the relief needs. The relief does not need to be on the fact that we need to pay workers less money. It needs to be that the the taxing um, we need to give some relief to the to the small business owner as far as their taxes. Well, so then let's talk about sort of the flip side of all this, and that's jobs and job creation. Um, you've talked about clean energy as something that would be a natural transition for Washington State uh, in terms of jobs. How specifically in your district do you create those kinds of jobs? Well, the great thing about the 31st is we are a large chunk of land. I love it. You know what I mean? I'm from the Midwest. So I love that the 31st makes up such a, actually a huge part of the congressional eighth. And it's just, uh, there is a possibility for great growth potential in the 31st, as far as we have space in which to grow. Now, that being said, is to not make the farmers upset. I'm not about going in and um, taking over all the farmland that's out there. Being from the Midwest and joking that I probably was on a tractor before I was ever on a car mm. um, is the fact that, um, you know, we, we need once again, strike that balance with growth in our residential areas, you know, homes for people to move into, growth to expand, to build businesses. I think there's great space out there, especially in um, the area of clean energy. I mean, I, I just cannot, there's just the possibility of having companies come out there and, and, and build, um, have the ability. Are you, talking, are you talking wind turbines or what, what specifically are you talking about when you talk about clean I'm, energy? Honestly, anything that wants to come out there and build, I, that's the future, right? And then we can, when we talk about education, we can talk about um, companies that want to come in and uh, start to have, teach kids classes in school uh, in the field of building clean energy, the computer programs that are going to need to run clean energy. I mean, that's a whole, whole nother conversation as far as that goes, that we can start kids in school in tech jobs that are going to do that. But um, yeah, I just think that we, we have, we have the space, we have the, we have people who are skilled and uh, we have the ability to grow down there with that. We'll, you know, then if we start talking about infrastructure and transportation, then that's the next hurdle is, you know, we're, we're going to need to have a much better infrastructure with that. If we're going to build those kind of jobs down there where people are going to want to move down into the 31st, they're going to want to move into the new homes that are being built. And, um, well, if you're talking about infrastructure and you're talking about transportation, those are the sorts of things that would be job creators, right? Exactly. And exactly. And I'm a teamster, so I'm a good union. So I believe in good union jobs and good union contracts down there helping with that infrastructure. Problem that we're having in the 31st right now is they kind of put the cart before the horse. They started with big, you know, building these these apartment complexes and these housing areas and stuff um, without building an infrastructure that can handle the people coming out there. And so what we find right now, what people are very upset about in the 31st is, you know, 
uh, taking an hour to take uh, to go one mile out there on 410 or or you get out into Enumclaw and Buckley and it is um, it's just a the traffic is ridiculous. We don't we we we've got mass amounts of people moving out with there, which is great, but we did not pre-build that infrastructure ahead of time. So now we're playing catch up, trying to do that. So you you mentioned being a teamster, and I, I want to talk a little bit about um, the post-election narrative about the Democratic Party losing a decisive chunk of the labor vote in the last election. Uh, from your perspective as a member of a labor union, how might the Democrats start to bring some of those union voters back into the fold? Well, I mean, I think we need to have a stronger stance on labor. I mean, I think we really need to be out there explaining, you know, um, once again, the other side, whatever the other side is that is in an election, sometimes paints a really good picture that labor uh, ruins companies, that labor um, puts companies out of businesses and are out of business and, and, you know, companies can't pay or negotiate or, or any of that. And that's just absolutely not true at all, but they're really good at painting that narrative. And the, I feel the Democrats don't do a very good job of counteracting. They just go, well, we're not going to fight them on that. We'll just show them. And so unfortunately they tend to not show and they need to, they need to speak and, and stand up and, and defend more uh, labor unions. My, it's funny because my platform as a PTA mom president it actually is the exact same thing as my, my candidacy. I always feel that strong communities are built through strong families. And what, what is a strong family looks like? That is good, fair, affordable housing so that we don't have people sleeping on the streets. I have kids who get off a school bus in my district and their parents' car is parked by the school stop and the kid gets right into that car and that's where that child lives. So mm -hmm. my thing is good, fair, affordable housing, good jobs. And good jobs means it's a, it's a fair wage where people can survive on that wage. And labor for me is that. Labor has um, a, a good paying wages and good benefits and you get up in the morning and you know you can go to your job. Um, the other thing has always been as well as access to health care and then a good education. So when you can create a strong family with those ideas, you will build strong communities. And that's what we want. And that's what we've always worked for in the PTA. Each piece of that, um, we work at some level of that. And that was very easy just to carry that over into my campaign. So those are some some broad values that you're laying out. And I, I kind of just want to drill a little bit deeper on that um, because the numbers are tough uh, historically for Democrats in your district. Uh, it's a top two primary uh, in the last two elections. The top two vote getters have been Republicans. So it's been a runoff between two Republicans with no Democrat on the ballot. You are the first Democrat to make it on the ballot in a number of years. So um I guess just sort of dovetailing on what we were just talking about, what are some of the other issues that you see as uniting uh, voters in the district, particularly independent voters who might lean a little more conservative in their values? Sure. And I think one of the things that makes me a good fit is the fact that I would say that we're, I'm probably more conservative on issues. Like, you know, the joke out there when people open the door, they're always like, oh, you're probably here to take away my guns. And I'm like, unless you're selling one, then I <laughs> Um, you know, my husband and I are, um, uh, we enjoy 
uh, guns. You know, we have them. The joke is I have more gun safes than I have children. Um, my husband is also in law enforcement, but we are for mass responsibility with that. So I tend to profile better for the 31st in the fact that I don't want to come take your guns away. I am a veteran. I am pro-law enforcement, pro-veteran rights. Um, and so that, yes, it's a very hard district, um, but people still want the basic values. They still want their kids to be taken care of, and they still want, um, you know, they want to be able to live in their house and have their land. And I, and I, I think it, once you just sit down, look, the bottom line is this district's going to be one at the door. That's the bottom line. That's why we knock and we knock and we knock and we talk because once they can hear- You're trying to clear up uh, misperceptions maybe by oh, going and talking to people in, in, yeah, in person. Yeah. The first misperception is, is that, I mean, especially that gets thrown around. Well, one is that I want a state income tax. Somebody dropped some robocalls about that. Um, because when, Washington currently doesn't have a state income right. tax. That's And for me, it would be devastating for the 31st. We just not, whatever happens north, if people want to try it in their cities, but for the 31st, it wouldn't work and we and I don't want it. So that's the first misconception at the door you have to clear up. The second one is, is that you do want to kind of come out and, and take their land away and their guns away and all that. And that's not anything that I am for whatsoever. And then once you just kind of start talking to them about their kids and how you care about their family and you care about, the, you want them to be able to have good health care. And when I speak a lot with uh, the elderly um, constituents that come to the door is that I want them to keep their social security and their, and their Medicare. And I don't want that taken away from them. And for veterans, I want them to have all the benefits. So once you, once you just talk to them about just the basic needs that they want and that you're there to support them and to help them and that you don't want to tax them into the ground. That's another misconception is that Democrats want to do nothing but just tax you, tax you, tax you. And that's not, um, that's, you know, that's not my, my game at all. So I think it's, it is clearing up the misconceptions when they can put a face to a name. The other thing too, is I have no name recognition out there. When I was into the primary, I was basically, by the time we got everything running and going, um, I had about one month of knocking on doors and a, a mailer and that was about it. And so, um, we think we did, I think I did very well for no name recognition. And this time around, we're at every door in every town. I mean, that's what we're we're getting to. We have it strategically mapped out and we are going to knock until nobody wants to see me anymore or hear about me. <laughs> well, I, I'm sure all that marching that uh, you were required to do in basic training is coming in real handy, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, so well, actually, you know, as a military veteran, I would like to ask you about the NFL controversy that Trump has cranked up over the last weekend because we're in Seahawk country. Um, Trump has said that he, quote, uh, decided, I think that was his word, that the protests in the NFL are against the flag and even against the military as opposed to being protests by African-American members of the NFL against police killings of unarmed African-Americans or against Trump's comments about race generally. So as somebody who has served in the military, how do you see the, the issue of NFL players taking a knee during the national anthem? I mean, for me, I guess it's it's very simple. I actually come from a, a, a I'm going to use the word prestigious because I'm very proud of my family. I come from actually quite a, a line of people who served in the military. There, are, um, You can look in books. There are books um, 
written partially about them. Um, my uncle, great uncle Sherman B. Watson actually took the Japanese flag down off the top of uh, Mount Suribachi. So, and we, our family has it so that um, uh, they could put up the famous flag that Rosenthal took the famous picture at Iwo Jima. That's the Iwo Jima photo, right? Yeah. Oh, wow. You, Interesting. You can open up any, any book that has to do with Iwo Jima, look in the back for Sherman B. Watson. And there are many, many pages written about him. Um, mm. on there. And my dad was in Vietnam. My Sherman's brother, Billy Watson, um, was the Band of Brothers troop. So there's, um, so I, I come from a long history. And um, my view is one, I have a lot of problem when, when people who don't serve speak on my behalf, when they tell me I'm offended, you know, like, oh, you're offending veterans. Well, I'll let you know when I'm offended. Uh, there's a lot of other things that offend me more than than somebody taking a knee. And I truly believe that uh, people fight and, and die and serve and retire and do all of that so that we have the right to express ourselves how we want to. Now, I'm for peaceful protest. I'm not, I'm not so much for setting buildings on fire or any of that. I, I, don't, I don't think that serves a, a purpose. But um, peaceful protest um, is... is is what uh, we join and why we fight to keep this country. I say it would be pretty sad if um, if uh, the Patriots, or when I, I'm sorry, not the football team, the Patriots, but people who were Patriots when this country was coming into being, um, if they hadn't taken a knee, right? That's kind of how I look at it. They took a knee at another flag and said, we're not going to put up with this anymore. And we're going to fight for, for our freedom. And that's what we did. And now we live in in such a great country. So um, I see the knee as just a symbolic uh, uh, type of a protest um, against something that is not working for them. And I, and I, I, I have no problem with it whatsoever as a veteran. I don't see it as against the flag. If you, if you just take and look at it against the flag, then you have missed the entire meaning and the entire um, narrative and conversation about what this is about. And that's more sad to me uh, than our president making it about the flag. So you've been out there working incredibly hard, as you say, seven days a week. Uh, Campaigns need volunteers. They need donations. How can people get involved with your campaign? That's an excellent question. (laughs) Great question. (laughs) That's the one candidates always love to answer. I know. And I totally appreciate you asking. So yes, we do need volunteers. Uh, We need people to knock on doors. If knocking on doors is not your thing, we have phone banking. Uh, We have a lot of great ways. That's the one thing I love about this campaign that they've set up is they've given people a lot of different um, avenues in which they can help volunteer. It doesn't always have to be just knocking on doors so they can feel like they're part of it. So, um, and you can make a donation, which would be excellent. Um, so that's all can be done at michellerylands.com. You can find out about events. You can find out ways to sign up and you can donate. Michelle Rylands, thank you so much for uh, being on the show and uh, and best of luck and, and keep up the great work out there. I appreciate it. And I'll come back and talk to you when I'm senator. Terrific. We look forward to it. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Time now for this week's call to action. And look, you guys, I know this is like the ninth time that we have talked on this show about defeating Trump care, but that's because we keep doing it. They keep bringing it up. We keep effectively resisting it. This latest effort, as you know, was called Graham Cassidy, and it was maybe the cruelest of all the bills. So much for Lindsey Graham being a moderate. 
Uh, the partial report released by the Congressional Budget Office said that millions would have been tossed off of their health care. But a few other assessments were way more specific, like devastatingly more specific. A report from the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities estimated that Graham Cassidy would result in more than one trillion cuts in Medicaid over the next 20 years. A study commissioned by Avalair, which studies health care policy, found that that number would be as high as four trillion. And so on Sunday, Susan Collins of Maine joined Rand Paul and John McCain in committing to vote no. Also, Ted Cruz, but who really cares what Ted Cruz does? Now, on one hand, we can rightfully bemoan the fact that the modern Republican Party is such that one senator is defecting because a bill is too cruel, and another is defecting because it isn't cruel enough, and yet another is defecting because it wasn't produced by the regular rules and procedure. But actually, depending on how you look at it, these fissures are actually encouraging because they mean... Well, they mean two things. One, that the Republicans may not try this again, because the health care issue really exposes the fault lines in their party in 2017. And also, two, because of that, they're probably not ever going to cook up a compromise that's going to be generous enough to satisfy the relative moderates, while at the same time being cruel enough to satisfy, well, pretty much the majority of other Republicans serving in Congress. I'm not in the business of making predictions, particularly not after the 2016 election, but I would like to think that we won't see this one come up again. I'm not holding my breath, but for the time being, particularly after reconciliation expires on the 30th, I think we can maybe celebrate the death of Trump care. And so for this week's call to action, let's do a little celebrating. Leah Greenberg and Ezra Levin of Indivisible released a statement that this victory is due to your consistent pressure on your members of Congress. Man, has it been consistent. I have honestly lost track of how many ACA repeal attempts there have been at this point. All right. So I had to stop and Google it. So here it is. In addition to the 54 times Republicans tried to repeal it during Obama's term in office, there have been three attempts or four, depending on your math, to repeal and replace since the beginning of 2017. And each one has been shot down due in extraordinary part to the continued work of indivisible members like you. So let's celebrate. And then let's rest up for the coming fight on tax reform. Because if there's one thing that gets Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell out of bed in the morning, it's the prospect of being able to slash the social safety net and give that money away to billionaires. I do predict that if we can stop them on that, that will be the end of this Republican Congress as we know it. So let us celebrate this week's win and rest up. And that is this week's call to action. My next guest, Sasha Bentley, is part of the leadership team of the Columbia Gorge Women's Action Network, an indivisible affiliated group on the Washington-Oregon border that includes Washington's 3rd Congressional District. Sasha Bentley, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So first, tell us a little bit about the Columbia Gorge Women's Action Network. How did that get started? Yeah, it got started by a group of two women, um, and they found out that they were meeting separately with their friends. And so they decided to join forces. And um, right now we're, we're a pretty large group. We have a large presence on Facebook. We have about 2,000 members there. Oh, wow. Um, our mission is to build a strong and supportive network of women activists in the Columbia Gorge, we strive to amplify the power of women's voices, knowledge, and leadership 
and to channel our collective energies into meaningful action. Uh, you have a degree in poli-sci from UW. Um, so tell us uh, first how you came to be involved in the Women's Action Network. Well, that could be a long story. Uh, <laughs> I, I kind of was involved in political action um, after the second Bush election. My family created a, a black wristband that said, I did not vote for Bush, and we sold it even around the world and raised $50,000 for and gave it all to progressive oh, wow. organizations. Yeah, so um, that kind of started it. The momentum took me through um, political science degree with a minor in women's studies, actually, um, at UW. And um, so I was kind of, you know, since graduation until now, kind of realized, what do I want to do? Searching, did a lot of traveling, worked in law, did some consulting. And um, it was after this election specifically that I was like, okay, now I know what I need to do, what I want to do. Um, and so, you know, I just dived into the political action arena and I was so thankful to see um, the Women's Action Network had formed near me, um, specifically because as a woman, I, I had been having some struggles. And so just the mentorship alone for this group was so worth it. Talk about the mentorship. Um, what what sort of mentorship does the group provide? Well, we have monthly meetings where we all get together. There's like a meet and greet happy hour where we just, I mean, that's where a lot of the mentorship happens. We share our struggles. We share our experiences. And, um, you know, we give each other advice. Um, later in the meetings, we, we give our updates for our actions. And then we usually have a, a presenter to um you know, share more in depth about a specific issue. So, um, but, you know, there's also the leadership team for me has been a great um, source of mentorship. And, um, of course, all the women I've met just individually one-on-one -on -one, I can go to when I need advice or help or anything. So I know that you are involved with a number of action committees in your group. What are some of the tasks you're taking on? So we're doing a lot of get out the vote, especially for this November election, um, yeah, we're going to register voters on National Voter Registration Day on September 26th. And then we're doing some we're going to try to do a walking canvas, uh, phone banking for, um, you know, Michelle Ryland or Monka Dingra would be great. Um, we could we, we could use all the help up uh, this, <laughs> that we can in that regard up in this direction. Sure. Yes, definitely. And, you know, that that switch will will affect us down here. We have, um, you know, Republican lawmakers. So. Um, you know, we try to talk to them and, and try to sway them. But, you know, if the, if the Senate can be turned turned blue, our, our job would be a lot easier. So um, one more exciting thing is um, our White Salmon City Council. It's a very small town. Um, four positions are up for the city council and every single one is contested. And so as Sigwon, we get to actually put on a candidates night forum. And so we can um, hear from the candidates and, and make sure all the voters are educated. And so we're really excited about that, too. That's great. And I, I know that because you, you, you said that you live in, in White Salmon, and I should mention that the group spans both sides of the Columbia River, both in Oregon and Washington. You yourself uh, live in White Salmon in, in Klickitas County. Um, 
in your district is Washington's third congressional district. Uh, you have a Republican member of Congress, Jamie Herrera Butler. Um, she has not been friendly to a lot of the sorts of issues that your group advocates for. Uh, one of the things that the Indivisible Guide stresses is being a real presence with your member of Congress. Have you uh, and your group contacted or interacted with uh, Jamie Herrera Butler at all? Yeah, we have. So I think it was back in January or February, we had one of her assistants, Pam Piper, come out all the way to White Salmon to meet with a group of us. Oh, really? um, that was, yeah, that was the best they could do. Of course, we, we requested actually seeing Representative Butler. Um, and then me personally, I actually was able to go in for just a short um, meeting via, uh, I guess, Skype um, when she was in D.C., um, just a fa- kind of a face-to-face, as close as you could get. And then the other um, attempt we've had is um, we'd love to, you know, invite her out to speak on certain federal issues like health care. So we've done a lot of requesting to that. And then, of course, the action. We have our action alerts, which tells us what to call her about that that week. So, we, yeah, we make lots of contact with her. And there's lots of energy towards replacing her in 2018. I'm curious to get an idea of the politics generally in your region. Uh, and, and as I said, uh, for, for people not familiar, the Columbia Gorge is on the border between Washington and Oregon. It's about 50 miles east of Portland. And I'm, I'm guessing it's fairly conservative where you are, yeah? Yes, we are in a rural area. And so that's difficult in itself. You know, it's harder to knock on doors and, and actually reach people and voters. Um, and we are... Well, I've heard people say we're red district and I've heard people say we're purple because we actually did vote for um, Obama. And I think it was the second election. One of his elections, you know, we, we went blue. So there's definitely potential there. What sort of response have you gotten in your community to the work that uh, your advocacy group does? Well, I think because of our area, we stress really that we are nonpartisan. I mean, of course, our actions might make people think we're we lean one way or the other but we're really just about you know building that network and actually um you know bringing our voices together amplifying them um to get things done we're issue based so you know it's not about democrat republican it's about helping our neighbors it's about protecting ourselves and our neighbors um yeah have you had any strong opposition to the work that you're doing there um not no not from not for the women's action network we've I mean, we will see the candidates night. That's one area that we want to try to prove our, our nonpartisanship. And um, so, you know, we've had really just support. I should also mention that you and your husband, Chris, have recently developed a card game called Checks and Balances, which is designed to get people to be more knowledgeable about the way our government works. Um, tell us a little bit about that. First, where did that idea come from? Well, I think Chris and I both had our separate kind of ideas. It was after the election, we were just staggered by the amount of people that don't vote. Of course, it's not news, but still in this election, you know, we really needed every single vote in every single place. So, you know, thinking about why don't people vote and, um, you know, not just voter suppression, but why do people not vote and how can we make government in general more fun um, and accessible and also a way to teach people the power of their one vote. And so all those things kind of, you know, the fun aspect, we were like, oh, let's make a game. And so we kind of both had the idea of a game and we kind of just 
ran with it. Um, we've we've get, play tested it. It plays incredibly smoothly, and it's actually a fun game. Even though you you know you don't really realize you're learning not only about the government process and you know the the three separate branches of government, how a bill and legislation goes through those three branches, but also the connection of a voter to an elected official to legislation. And then um, another great aspect of the game is the legislation cards that we have are based exactly off the Democrat and Republican platforms. So it's a way to actually put the platforms side by side even and see what does a Republican stand for on uh, education, for example, what does a Democrat stand for? Because that was right. another thing, you know, these, this false equivalency of the Democrats and Republicans. Um, we just wanted to show, um, you know, people that this is what they stand for, each party, and, you know, you can agree or disagree. So if you are playing the game, you're required to take on and advocate uh, the policies of the party that you uh, have chosen to represent. I'm wondering if some people find themselves maybe not being so keen on advocating for policy positions that they maybe don't believe in during the course of the game. Is that something that's come up? Yeah, that's a great question because we've actually been very, well, I don't know, surprised, but we're really grateful that everyone has had fun with whatever party they take. And it's, oh, really? it, yeah, it's funny. It's actually, you know, some people take the Republican um, deck just to, just to kind of play that role. So in a way it's right. like role playing. And also, you know, I forgot to mention that this is also a tool, not only educational, but it is a way to break ice between friends, family members, neighbors who have different political views. Um, it could spark conversation. You know, it just breaks the ice is, is the best way to put it. Well, it sounds fun. Uh, have you had good feedback from the people in the Columbia Gorge Women's Action Network on the game? Yes, we have. They're, you know, many of our first supporters and I'm definitely planning some sort of gameplay event for them. Um, and then also our area just because, um, I think it would just be a lot of fun. Well, I want to say thank you for joining us on this show. The, the game sounds like a lot of fun. I want to thank you for all the work that you're doing down there. And I also should mention that, uh, there are a number of wildfires that are very close to where you are right now. So I'm just, uh, we're wanting you to uh, stay safe. So Sasha Bentley, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And that will do it for this week's show. If you would like to learn more about the show, head over to IndivisiblePodcast.org. There you will find links to all of the things that we talk about here. There is a searchable back catalog of shows, all that good stuff. Our email address is IndivisiblePodcast at gmail.com. Again, IndivisiblePodcast at gmail.com. I, I so love hearing from you guys. Keep it up. Oh, and if you want to catch me trying to be clever on Twitter, I am at IndivisiblePod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc., Thank you again to my guests, Michelle Rylands and Sasha Bentley. And thanks also to Michael Fertakis. And thanks as always to you for listening. And we'll see you guys next time. Bye.